You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Eric Winsberg and John Simmons, nice to see you. Good to see you, Eric. Um, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, meaningoflife.tv, bloggingheads.tv. The uh, Sophia program is available on streaming uh, video and audio podcast. I'm Dan Kaufman, the uh, host. Um, uh, I'm also a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. I publish an online magazine called The Electric Agora. Um, I'm joined today by two gentlemen, both of whom work in the philosophy of science, um, and uh, who, um, if you don't mind, could you give a little uh, brief introduction, each of you, of yourselves, so that the audience uh, can have a better sense of, of who you are, what you do, what, era, what, what you work in. Um, John, why don't you go first? Great. Thanks, Dan. Um, my name is John Simmons, and I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Kansas. I'm also external faculty for the um, Complexity Science PhD program at uh, the Lisbon University Institute. And uh, that's me. I work on modeling and, and lots of other things, but, um, but over the years I've written and researched on, on modeling and the use of computers in science. Eric, why don't you give us uh, the 30-second version of uh, your, what you do and who you are, what you do, and what your areas of uh, research are. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Um, so I'm Eric Winsberg. I'm professor of philosophy at the University of South Florida. I'm in San Diego right now. I'm uh, visiting the Institute for Practical Ethics at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, I've been working on um, computer modeling in general uh, in the sciences for most of my career for about 20 years. Uh, I wrote a book called Science in the Age of Computer Simulation about 10 years ago, and since then I've mostly been working on climate science, and I wrote a book called uh, Philosophy and Climate Science uh, that came out in 2018. Well, this is great. Um, the occasion of this, so John and I had already started sort of a budding re relationship um, uh, online because we're neighboring states, um, and um, um, we were trying to get something going where John would come to Missouri state to do, to do some sort of a presentation and then various um, catastrophes with my very, very old parents interrupt, kept interrupting. Um, but John reached out to me now because um, he, given the current situation with the novel coronavirus that we find ourselves in, um, John, uh, think wants to talk about, John and Eric both um, want to sort of, bring some of their, their expertise and research to bear. Um, and so John reached out to me to see if we could do, if we could have a conversation about uh, what modeling is, uh, the kinds of modeling that are being used in, 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 the conf in confronting the, the novel coronavirus and the relationship um, between such modeling and uh, the sort of policy decisions that, that, that have to follow from it. Um, I'm going to play primarily a moderator role. I, I may ask questions um, where I think that they might be illuminating, but for the most part, this is going to be uh, John and Eric's uh, show. So, John, why don't you why don't you start out? And I don't I don't care where from that triangle you want to start out. Um, what modeling is the kind of modeling being used um, of, in front of the coronavirus, or the relationship between mo um, uh, modeling and policymaking? Start wherever you want, but um, why don't you get us going on this? Okay. Um, so 
there's lots of ways into this, as you said. One one way is just sort of think about the role of of a of a model. Um, in the case of um, epidemiological models, just historically, I would say around in the in the 1920s or thereabouts, um, folks were thinking about the dynamics of epidemics, and they hoped to develop models that would explain the data that they had on past epidemics. So, for example, um, today we use, uh, well, a sort of a standard model here is the SIR model. And the SIR model is uh, the kind of the original um, model, the kind of the basic starting point for what are now called compartment models of epidemics. So they take the general population, they divide them, the set of people into different categories. So in the SIR model, you've got the susceptibles, the infecteds, and the removeds. And your goal then is to track the dynamics of how we move or how these agents or these, these, the, the, the people that we're studying move from being susceptible to infected, then removed. So you can be removed in a variety of ways. You could die, you could develop immunity, or you could be socially distanced. And as you know, effective social distancing effectively increases the number of removeds from the population. So the early model of the early SIR models basically track that dynamic in order to give an explanation for how the pattern that we see, let's say the early exponential rise in the number of infected people, maybe the peak and the leveling off, how would we build a set of equations? So in this case, it would be three um, ordinary differential equations that capture the SIR model in its simplest form. How that can be characterized in order to depict that dynamic. So that that was the early goal in the 1920s. It was sort of an explanatory project to to give an account of that dynamics. Um, much of what we do today builds on that. Now there are lots of different kinds of models that folks in epidemiology use. There are these compartment models. So take, for example, the Imperial College model. That's a very, very fancy version of an SIR model with lots and lots of compartments, you know, hundreds of categories, hundreds of parameters. It's not just those three parameters that we were talking about in the models from the, from the 20s. So that's one kind of model. Let's say the Imperial College style model. We have other models like the University of Washington model that's, gained, that's been very prominent recently. That's a statistical model. So that doesn't give any access to the sort of inner causal workings of the epidemic. It takes data, primarily the fatality rate data, and then curve fits to that in order to give predictions. In the same way, well, and we can talk more about the limitations of those, of those various approaches as we as we go on, and Eric has a lot to say about that. So there are, there are a variety of others. There are network models, there are agent-based models, there are combinations of those models. But bottom line is we're using models as the basis for informed decisions. So we want to reduce uncertainty. We've got models that sort of characterize the decision space in a way that allows us to reduce uncertainty, 
and hopefully generate better decisions than we would have otherwise. So that's a very broad introduction, but it gives you the sense for the sort of space of different kinds of models and um, in very broad strokes. So, Eric, do you want to add anything to that sort of initial sort of description or characterization? Yeah, I mean, just maybe just to remind people of something they probably know, which is that the two models that, that Jeff, John mentioned, the, uh, the Imperial College model, that was the one that, uh, you know, was, was used um, in the UK right after Boris Johnson recommended the herd immunity strategy that a lot of people criticized. Um, and when some of the original recommendations were made in the United States, that was the model that said we'd get 2.2 million dead if we did nothing, uh, but that with, a, you know, a, a maximum suppression, which was supposed to involve cycling the economy on and off, mostly off for the next 18 months until we got a vaccine that predicted that we could reduce the death rate down to, I think, something like 250,000 from the 2.2 million. Uh, so that was one of the main models that informed policy here. And then it kind of... The death rate from the virus, you're saying? Death rate from the virus right. to Americans. Okay, yeah. yeah. It was predicted 2.2 million, 2.2 million dead Americans from novel coronavirus if we did nothing. And I believe something like 200,000 if we did this maximal suppression. And then it also made various predictions about... Um, how, the, the main reason that it was meant to reduce deaths uh, was not because fewer people would get the virus uh, over the over the period of time. It was because it would flatten the curve uh, and thereby produce much less strain on the healthcare system, in particular on the number of ventilators. So the model did a lot of predicting about how many ICU beds we had, and it predicted that it predicted that uh, the, the the so what maybe a lot of people don't realize is that. At any given time, most of our ICU beds are full anyway. Uh, obviously, we don't just keep, you know, on we don't keep on hand thousands of times as many ICU beds as we need. Uh, and so the model predicted that, you know, excess available ICU capacity would originally be, even with maximum suppression, would be overwhelmed by a factor of eight. Uh, but then after that, we would get it down and then we would allow little waves that would just peak up to the available number of ICU beds and we could, we could kind of cycle that on and off until the vaccine was available. Um, and then the other model that John mentioned is the so-called IHME model, which is from the University of Washington, which I think was uh, funded in large part by Bill Gates's uh, foundation. Um, and that uh, kind of piggybacks on the basics, the basic knowledge that we get from the kind of model that the Imperial College is and the kind that John was talking about that goes back to the 1920s because those models all produced, um, you know, these sort of logistic curves that we've all seen a million times now. And so what the IHME model basically does is it creates, uh, out of a Gaussian, it basically creates uh, curves that have that shape um, and then just fits them to the incoming data. And so originally, of course, what they did, since the only data we had uh, were from China, uh, they they kind of fit their curves to the um, and so basically they all that all those models really do is they have a uh, uh, a moment when you know measures are imp implemented in society and they figure out based on looking at incoming data what does a particular date of implementation of measures do to that curve yeah. um, and, and as as everybody I think now knows right these things have gotten you know hugely they get updated in in 
huge amounts. So, you know, one day they'll predict that, um, I think this happened, you know, one day they were predicting that Alabama would have um, a deficit of three, of 30,000 hospital beds. And then five days later, you know, new data came in and they said, no, Alabama's not going to have any hospital bed deficit. Um, but I, again, I think one thing we really want to remember is that um, the goal of, all, of both of those models, uh, and, and it's so Wendy Parker has coined this phrase in, in the philosophy of modeling, but I've been kind of following behind her, chirping it a lot as well. Um, models are for purposes, and uh, we don't evaluate models as being right or wrong. We evaluate them as being adequate for purpose or not. And I think it's important to remember that both of these, the purpose of both of these models was to both uh, predict what kinds of strains hospitals would come under, but also to predict what we could do uh, to alleviate that strain by implementing various measures. Okay, let me ask you two things. Um, the first question I have is, given that, the second type of modeling, the statistical type of modeling, depends upon the first type of modeling. What is the added benefit of having the second type of modeling in addition to the first type of modeling in terms of our practical aims, our policy aims? That's the first question. Second question I have is, are the models flexible in the sense that um, if, as it seems to be turning out, um, we've been overusing or too quickly using ventilators and they're now recommending um, um, not rushing to rec not using ventilators so quickly. Do the models are the models flexible in such a way that they that they react to that in terms of in terms of in terms of as an instrument for for policymaking? Those are the two questions I have at the onset. Okay, I would say in principle they should be, and in principle we're going to be updating models uh, given new 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 data. Um, I, I would also say that. Um, you know, um, in in my own work and work with uh, with others, we've emphasized actually the predictive role of modeling. Um, so, you know, the, a good test of a model is its predictive power. So, um, I think we're we're really in a space where what we mean by prediction here means reducing uncertainty. So we've got a, a if you think about how um, how we make good decisions. There are certain things we know we can rule out ahead of time. So we know we can rule out certain kinds of uh, scenarios ahead of time, um, just via common sense. And then the, what the model does is it helps us to exclude um, alternative possibilities that are irrelevant to our current conditions. And that's going to happen through a process of updating. Um, I think um, Eric might want to speak to the difference between the, the um, let's say, the more kind of differential equations based models or the, uh, the, 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 the SIR style models and the statistical models. I think that there is a, there is a, a really interesting difference there that, um, yeah. Eric, yes. what's, the, what's the benefit of having that statistical model on top of the earlier other kind, given that it depends on the other kind, what, what does it add to our decision-making abilities? Yeah, so I think the main, so I think your two questions are very closely related. I think one of the purposes of the IHE model, IHME model was that it's much more, it is much easier to adapt it to incoming data. So the Pure College model is a massive, uh, massive set of coupled differential equations, as John said, with 700 different parameters in it. 
um, the IHME model they're updating every few days. It's Does also that mean it's clunky in the sense that it, it it's harder it's harder for it to adapt to new data in real time. Is that sort of the problem? I, I don't know enough about the actual details of it. I don't know how much computer load it uses and all that, but I would imagine it's clunkier in that way. That's just a guess. But, but clearly what's the case is that the IHME model is being updated much more. It's being run on much more fine. So it's making state level predictions about ICU load need and hospital bed load need. And as, as I think John pointed out, that was its original function, was to help hospital administrators uh, predict resource needs. Uh, I, I, I want to say one other thing really quickly about um, adequacy for purpose as a, as a standard for vitamin models. So, I mean, I think one thing John said was, well, we, you know, I think about models in terms of their having the purpose of prediction. I meant something quite a bit more fine-grained than that when I talk about adequacy for purpose. By purpose, I certainly mean things like, you know, the purpose of offering explanation versus the purpose of prediction. But even with regard to prediction, that's not the kind of fine-gradedness of purpose that I have in mind, right? So predicting what? Um, and more, much more importantly than predicting what? Predicting it, uh, so different policy goals that you might be evaluating require very different uncertainty envelopes in your prediction. So, you know, um, a model, for example, in climate science, a model that's designed to tell you, is it a good idea to reduce carbon emissions, right, uh, is a different kind of predictive purpose than a model that's designed to tell you, is it a good idea to spray uh, sulfate aerosols into the atmosphere to try to offset global warming, uh, or is it, am I going to need to build a bigger dam uh, in this particular? So different policy goals uh, might all be asking models to make predictions. They might even be asking them to make the same predictions, but different policy goals might make diff the same model adequate for one purpose, but not adequate for another purpose, even if it's, it involves them making exactly the same prediction because in some policy goal evaluations, an uncertainty envelope that's rather large might be tolerable, and in another context, that uncertainty envelope might be intolerable. Uh, so I think that's what, when, when I talk about models being evaluated for adequacy of purpose, I mean it in quite a fine-grained sense. Not just are you predicting versus explaining, but if you're predicting, what are you predicting? What are you going to do with that prediction? How tolerant are you to uncertainty? How good is your model? At not just how uncertain is the model, but how good is the model at telling you on how uncertain it is? All of those things are, I think, Im extremely important uh, when you're evaluating a model for its adequacy for purpose. John, did you want to add anything to that? You look like you're... I think yeah. I, I, I agree fully with that. We could talk a little bit about, um, uh, let's say, if you have a, a model with a very large number of parameters, like the Imperial College model, um, we do have a question about the relevance of, or well, the usefulness, let's say, of that degree of fidelity. So this this might be a point where we could talk about expertise in, in epidemiology. So for example, if you have some very large number of parameters, many of which um, won't have reliable data sources. And so we're currently in a situation where we have you know, low, in, we're in a low information environment about a lot of these uh, very important pieces of evidence, um, having roughly, I, 
I'm not sure exactly how many, but having roughly 700 parameters, many of which you don't really have good evidence for, means that we have to move to reliance on the expertise of epidemiologists. It might be the case then that in a lot of those models, we can simply uh, do just as well by factoring out the points where the, the experts don't have, let's say, real evidence or real data or are instead using professional judgment, that it's often the case that we can sort of have simpler, um, maybe less high fidelity models in terms of the number of parameters that are just as predictive. And a lot of these things, as Eric says, depend on, you know, the purpose of the model. What is the model designed to predict? So if specifically our goal here is to reduce the burden on the healthcare system to a tolerable level, so we don't have the kind of uh, situation in American hospitals that we saw in Wuhan, if that's our goal, and it's partly our goal, it seems to be our, our, our most important goal is reducing strain on the healthcare system, then we can often get away with lower levels of fidelity in the model. Um, maybe Eric wants to jump in here, but I think here it's, it's um, yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Eric, is there anything you wanted to add on that? Because I did have one more generic question about um, modeling and policymaking before we talk specifically about how it's playing out with the coronavirus. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, as a general matter, so before we get to specifically how this is playing out under the current uh, set of events, um, as a general matter, how do you see the relationship between this sort of modeling, modeling and the policy decisions that we ultimately make? In other words, the policy decisions we make are ultimately based in um, values, right? Um, um, so, you know, you just gave an example, you know, if, our, if the aim of our is, policy is to unburden um, not to overload the healthcare system. Um, well, one way you could do that, of course, is by killing everybody else in the hospital, right? So there's plenty of space. Now, we're not going to do that because we have a larger policy aim, right, um, of, of, of not killing more people, not having not more people die generally than need to die generally, right? Not just from the virus, but from anything else. And so I guess what I'm sort of wondering is, are, do people have a misconception perhaps that there's a much more direct relationship between what the models tell you and what you should do um, than, than is really the case? Because the models simply give you information, but ultimately what that information implies in terms of what you ought to do depends entirely on the values that govern your policy, your policymaking, right? Do either of you have uh, feelings about that? Yeah, Eric, please go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So, so really, really broadly, right, there are yeah. two ways you can think about how to make policy goals. I mean, and if you look at, if you, look at you know, uh, philosophy of environmental science and all that kind of stuff, this, this is just widely discussed, right? You can think of these things in terms of a kind of cost-benefit analysis where you say, you know, if I do this, there's a 20% probability of this very bad thing happening and a 40% probability of this not-so-bad thing happening and I assign such a value to this bad thing and such a value to this not so bad thing and such and such value to this good thing. And then I look at this other policy choice and I, I just, I look at the, you know, I, I multiply the probabilities by my utilities of those things and I, and I go ahead and do it. 
Now, of course, doing that, right, doing that requires you to make two very difficult judgments. One, how do I value these things? And two, what are these probabilities? Okay. And in particular, the second thing is often extremely hard to figure out what are the probabilities of various outcomes given various decisions. So sometimes people think, right, and this is, this is I think, entirely justified. Sometimes people think when uncertainty is high, in fact, you know, when sort of like what, what, uh, um, what Knight called, uh, uh, you know, uh, uncertainty rather than risk, that is not just that there are, not just that you don't know what's going to happen, but you don't even know how to evaluate the probabilities of how things are going to happen. And where some of the outcomes are really, really terrible, you should throw away cost-benefit analysis and you should just do whatever you can to avoid the really terrible outcome, right? That's so-called precautionary principle reasoning or precautionary reasoning or whatever. And they're very different, right? Cost-benefit analysis and precautionary reasoning are quite different. And precautionary reasoning doesn't really rely on as detailed a kind of scientific knowledge for obvious reasons, right? You just say, my God, you know, this virus seems to have the, at least in principle capability of killing millions of people. Let's just do whatever we can, right, to stop it. Now, if you, of course, decide to go that way, notice it's now very difficult to say, well, but what are the costs? How many, you know, how many suicides is this going to cause? How much domestic violence is this going to cause? How much, uh, um, you know, uh, unemployment and then, you know, childhood hunger, et cetera, et cetera. How much is this going to cause country, cause other countries around the world that don't have stable political systems? Like let's say Serbia, where, yeah. you know, they have this sort of aspiring dictator yeah. who's now clearly using this to lock down control of the country. So, if you go with the kind of precautionary reasoning, it then becomes very difficult to, to weigh the different options there. Yeah. So, so that then forces you, if you don't want to do that, if you do want to be able to weigh, you know, virus deaths versus all these other things I mentioned, now you really need, right, some mechanism, some kind of cognitive mechanism for figuring out what those probabilities are. And there's no question, right, that once you want to do that, you got to do some scientific model. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. John, you're nodding. Yeah. 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 One second, Eric. Let's just, Eric, were you just finishing up, Eric? Yeah, should... one really quick point, yeah. right? Is that models, I think, don't, in the end, give you the uncertainties, Right. They're tools for experts to use to assign uncertainty. Yeah, they just do what they do. Yeah, 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 yeah. John, please go ahead. Yeah, I, I am in broad agreement with what Eric's saying. That's eminently reasonable. Um, I would say um, even if we have, even if we do assume a strongly precautionary attitude towards, um, towards, towards the epidemic, data and modeling are going to be critical anyway, right? Yeah. So they're, they're, and yeah. let's say, for example, let's say we're, we, we, we are in a situation where we are capable of randomly sampling some s sample of the population. Uh, let's say we talked ahead of time about, you know, what kind of numbers that would require in order to get a snapshot, just a snapshot of the folks who are infected now or folks who have been infected, et cetera. So if we had, if we had a sample of 1,000 
Americans at random, I guess that would be like a 3% um, uh, margin of error. If we had 10,000 people sampled, we would have maybe a 1% margin of error. Um, we need to be doing things like that, that give us sort of data via testing that are sensitive to these statistical constraints. Obviously, epidemiologists know what they're doing. They know how to run those kinds of tests. They know how to do those kinds of samples. But let's say we did that, and it turns out that 60% of us have had the disease or have uh, or are carrying the disease. Then what we're doing currently would be absolutely pointless. But we don't, so there's no point in socially isolating at that point, right? Um, we're not in that position. We, as far as we know, we're, we're nowhere near that position. Because we don't know how many people. We know, we know some things. So we know, for example, that when, um, when expecting mothers are tested in hospitals in New York City, 14% of them are carrying the virus, right? Uh, These are small samples, maybe a few hundred people, but um, we, we do know something. We know Isn't it kind of an eccentric sample, though. I mean, is there any reason to think that that tells us anything about pregnant mothers in Wyoming? Oh, absolutely not. Right. Yeah, okay, right. good. Absolutely good, good. not. Right, yeah, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, is, it is a sort of idiosyncratic group, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, as, as, some people have pointed out that it might be it might be uh, lower than lower than the generals the general statistic in New York in the tri-state area because you know pregnant women are are being very careful or or it might be higher because they're going to doctors' offices all the time. We don't know. We actually don't know. But you know, having those kinds of measures, I think, is critically important. So this is just to reemphasize the central point that even if you do take this uh, maybe extremely precautionary attitude towards the, the problem, you're still going to need that kind of data. And then you're still going to realize that certain kinds of things are pointless. So if it turns out that there's a very high level of infection currently, which I guess we don't have evidence that that's the case, then even if we did have this radically precautionary attitude or value, it still would be a waste of our time and resources right. to socially isolate. Right. Right. So, yeah, so that's a hypothetical. Exactly. I'm not saying that that is the case at the moment, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but that's the kind of trade-off. So, you know, there's, there, so there's something ghoulish, let's say, on first impression about a cost-benefit analysis in this space. Now, we do cost-benefit analyses all the time. Right, coal miners. We know how many coal miners are going to die to produce coal. We know how many people are going to die building a building. Car, car driving, car driving. <laughs> right. There's something, and there is something deeply ghoulish about that. Or let's say that's our our gut reaction is that it's a kind of a ghoulish calculus. But even if we're resistant to doing that, and we want to be entirely precautionary, and we're terrified of the virus for all kinds of good reasons. We still need good evidence and we still need to, to use models in, in this way to know what absolutely isn't helping. Right, right. I just want to make clear yeah. one thing yeah. I, I said. When I said, you know, we can either be do cost-benefit analysis or we can be precautionary. I think in the present context, what being precautionary would mean would be, we don't know anything right now. We need to lock everybody down until we have more information. Until right. such time as we can start doing cost benefit analysis, I think that would be pretty. That would be pretty obviously the 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 way to think about being precautionary here. Precautionary until evidence is better. Yeah, 
Yeah. Because of course, precautionary is always, I think that precautionary reason is always predicated on the idea that you don't know what the probabilities are. So of course, whenever you're being precautionary, I think it, you know, this would be my opinion, whenever you're being precautionary, it behooves you to be collecting as much data as you can so that you can stop being precautionary because being precautionary is never the ideal thing to be doing. Yeah. yeah. Let, let me, let me, let me just say one more thing and, and then let's get fully into how, how the modeling is being, uh, is going with this uh, pandemic and how it's being used in a policymaking. Um, I just want to make one other, other observation after what Eric had said, you know, Eric, you very, you very nicely pointed out just how difficult and complicated this is once your focus is no longer so narrowly on just preventing coronavirus deaths, but the larger val- policy value of minimizing deaths in general. Well, now you have to pay up, play off. You now need debt evidence and models of how many deaths are going to result from the measures that we're taking in order to stop these deaths. And you, and you very nicely pointed out the complexity of that and the fact of, of the difficulty of getting all that other evidence that we would need. I just want to sort of make it a little bit worse. Um, this all still only revolves around policymaking that's based in what are essentially utilitarian values, right? If you now add on top of it the complexity of values like, for example, um, the extent to which um, we can have police interfering with people's free movement out in public spaces, right, in a liberal society, there is no science or data that's going to that's gonna weigh upon that question at all. And there's no way to measure the relevant significance of that value as opposed to the utilitarian one. So I guess all that I want to say is that people should not think that there's some straight line from science to policymaking. Right, the policy making is informed by values of of a mul- of multiple types, only some of which are informed by empirical science. Right, others are, are, are informed only by philosophical discussion or by religious. Let me just add one. Yeah, please, please. Wow. Yeah. We are still taking our shoes off at the airport. We right. are still bringing liquids on the plane. Uh, we are still running the prism. Uh, you know uh, the the Edward Snowden revealed uh, um, snooping mechanism. So once you dial these things up, they are very hard to dial back. Things that when people give up these kinds of freedoms, right, we know policymakers are always very reluctant yeah. to dial these things back. And that's no I don't think there's any science of that. I mean, I could, there's just maybe some, maybe there's some sociology of that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some social also, science maybe would be relevant yeah. to that. John, did you want to weigh in just on these general observations about uh, um, it, it, it modeling us, and policy, or do you want to go into the specifics? Um, this takes us pretty far afield. I, I do have concerns about, for example, the use of surveillance during the yeah. epidemic. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but we don't have to talk about that. We just, I just wanted to point in that direction and say, look, yeah. On the policy side, we still have all kinds of things we have to work out that the science is not going to help us with, right? Yeah, um, no um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, but but we're here today to talk about the science, coronavirus, and policymaking. So let's now focus on that specifically. I don't care which of you starts first, but could we maybe have you guys start talking about how the modeling is actually being used now um, with respect to um, the virus and the policy making that we're that we're uh, basing on that modeling, how's it actually being done? Well, okay. sorry, go ahead, Eric. Yeah, so I mean, uh, it's being 
used, I think, rather, um, you know, in a rather simple and straightforward way. Namely, it's been used by politicians who've just kind of held up these pictures to us of these curves and said, look, you know, so this started obviously in the UK. Boris Johnson had a policy choice that he favored. The Imperial College people came out with this model and said, 500,000 dead in the UK. If you do this, 2.2 million dead in the US. And he very quickly buckled. Um, uh, you had, you know, in, in California uh, and Washington, the governors held up these pictures from the IHME and said, you know, these are, these are policy choices that, you know, are going to produce these massive numbers of dead and these massive uh, shortages of ventilators and ICU beds. And so these are no-brainer decisions. Uh, we obviously have to do these things because the models show these massive differences between outcomes. How are they I, getting the information? I mean, look, England is a, Britain's a relatively small country. They have a centralized national health service. I'm assuming that data collection and everything is sort of systematized across the system. How in a place like the United States, which is enormous, in which states have a lot of autonomy and localities have a lot of autonomy, how is the federal government getting a sense? Is, is, are all these sources, are all the hospitals around the country sending data to a central? How are we getting a, a national picture in the U.S.? Yeah, so reporting is... Reporting so, I'm is, sorry, John, go ahead. Yeah, reporting is a really complicated matter, right? So that we don't have consistent standards for, for reporting um, even something as straightforward as fatalities for, for the virus. Um, if you look at the at reported data, you see all kinds of bizarre artifacts having to do with, you know, updating software systems or the effect of Sunday, you know, or holidays, et cetera, on the reporting rates. So there's a there's a great deal of inconsistency, and one one clear I, I think one one really important um, lesson of of what we're going through will be that you know consistent standards for reporting across across the country and across you know and internationally will be really helpful. So you know let's say we're we're interested in in policy making and we're looking at the um, the different levels of fatality in, let's say, Finland versus Sweden versus Germany versus uh, Kansas. Um, it's going to be really important that we know that we're starting from the same baseline with respect to evidence in order to make those judgments. So if we say, well, look, the Finns have um, N deaths, the Swedes have N plus many deaths, and uh, the Kansans have very low rates, um, the relevance of that kind of data really depends on having having consistency, um, and we currently don't have consistent international standards, and as you said, maybe national standards. But how do we feed the models? What are we feeding into the models? So it'll, it's going to be like county data, data from uh, county health departments, data from states, uh, press releases, etc. So if you're looking at what gets reported online, it's going to be like that. Of course, the CDC has a has close relationships with with um, uh, state and local um, health departments and all the rest. So there, there are. There, I mean, we're in a pretty good position in the United States in terms of uh, data collection. Um, so the other, the other, I, I mean, 
It's not a simple matter, Dan. I mean, it's like, you know, let's say, for example, I die of, uh, of, of, of liver cancer and uh, they conduct an autopsy on me and they find that I have uh, the virus. Um, you know, should I count as a, as a fatality? If I'm in a car accident and I have the virus, then surely Obviously not. Obviously not, right. If I, but if I have a heart attack, then maybe, maybe. Yeah. And those are judgment calls that we leave to to doctors, but they're going to vary from from uh, location to location. Whether or not we conduct autop uh, testing on the dead on, in an autopsy context, that's going to vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So having common standards would be really helpful, even if you know we could quarrel about those standards. Right, having a sort of common baseline would be really helpful. Eric, please go ahead. Yeah, so I just, I mean, one thing I noticed very early on, um, in New Jersey, uh, there's a webpage you can go to right now. I think it's something like hippocrates.newjersey.gov. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's right. And it will tell you right now how many hospitals in New Jersey are not accepting any patients, how many are not accepting patients for the ICU, how many of them have broken CT scanners right now so that you can't, for example, get a CT scan if you go to that hospital. New York has nothing like that. There's been very, it's been very hard to get information about what the seriousness of overcrowding in New York hospitals is. At the same time, there have been enormously many breathless articles in, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera, about New York hospitals bracing for overcrowding, right? Uh, you know, so that we then sent uh, the Navy um, hospital ship to New York they opened up the Javits Center with something like 2,000 hospital beds. They were throwing out tents in, Manhattan, in Central Park in Manhattan for more hospital beds. Um, and again, you know, I just, I, I, I've been a bit disturbed by this, given that people are being uh, asked and in some cases forced to make these uh, very large, you know, sacrifices to their livelihood and their, and their personal freedoms. Uh, in the name of, as John has pointed out, right, where the primary goal here, and I think you need to keep our eye on that ball, the primary goal here has been to prevent hospital overcrowding. Uh, I'm uncomfortable with the fact that it's been hard to get good information on exactly how much of that hospital overcrowding there's been. Now, I know some of that, you know, New Jersey probably had this system in place long before the coronavirus came and New York didn't, and those are, those are, you know, in some sense, just luck of the dice or something, really. But um, it, it's been, I think it's been, it's made me uncomfortable that it's been hard to get these data, given that that is... Our main aim. Yeah, it's our main aim. That's correct. Right? Yeah. So, so, I mean, the general point is that if your main aim is to reduce overloading hospitals, in order to feed the data into the relevant models, you actually have to know how whether the hospitals are being overloaded, right? I mean... You, you, I also think... I also think the public has a right to see, to know about that. I think the yeah. public has a right to know um, how, how, how bad is this problem really? Because yeah. we're being asked to make very important sacrifices and decisions about who else should make sacrifices, et cetera. We should have access to that information, I think. Yeah, like putting, yeah. And also, you know, I guess that what they're doing also, it's not just um, about, you know, more abstract issues, but it's, they're very concrete ones. I mean, there are all sorts of elective surgeries and stuff that are not being done. You know, like my daughter was supposed to have a colonoscopy to see if she's got some sort of uh, an, an upper GI to see if she's got some sort of um, um, uh, 
uh, irritable bowel or something else because she's been having stomach problems. That's just on hold indefinitely. So, um, 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 and, and, and sorry, moreover, right. We know, we know, we know that all across the country, but especially in the New York area, but even in San Francisco and Los Angeles, we know that, for example, cardiac patients in hospitals right now are down staggering numbers. I don't want to throw out a figure because I don't have it at the tip of my fingertips, but staggering numbers are uh, down of cardiac patients. Now, um, there's no particularly good reason to think that the shelter-in-place things are preventing people from having heart attacks and strokes. Yeah. It's yeah. much more likely that they've seen all these articles and they're just terrified to go to the hospital. Now, we know that there are, for example, in Manhattan, we know there are a lot of excess deaths at home. What we don't know is whether those are, whether those are coronavirus deaths that haven't been properly counted or whether those are people that have been dying of strokes and heart attacks because... You know, I mean, we know, we, you know, we, anyone's, anyone who's ever seen any of these public service announcements knows that some of the early signs of stroke and heart attack aren't, aren't obviously serious, right? We have to be told, oh, you know, if you have chest pains here, da, 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 you should go to the ER very quickly because da, 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 right? We don't know. We don't, we don't know how much of this is, uh, is preventing people from seeking precautionary uh, yeah. emergency care yeah. like that. Yeah. And, and making them die in their home. I mean, our, our hospital system just flat out told, told the entire county, don't come for, you know, we will not accept you for elective, you know, elective procedures. Every, everything, you know, my dentist closed. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, so, so it's not even just a matter of whether people are being spooked of going to the hospital. A lot of hospitals simply are not accepting any defeasible or contingent sort of uh, uh, procedures now. Um, I guess, you know, if you're in a car wreck and if you're bleeding to death, they'll still take you to the emergency room. But um, John. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go ahead, John. I think, you know, often I, I wouldn't want to criticize that kind those kinds of calls that. Oh, I wasn't criticizing. I was just describing yeah. it. Yeah. 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 But I will say, um, you know, when we think about the costs of various courses of action, sometimes models also give us very clear insight into those costs and, and potential benefits. Right. So, um, it occurs to me, for example, when we think about the social costs of, uh, of social distancing and closing schools, for example, we have ample evidence, um, both, you know, from past epidemics, from flus, et cetera, and from modeling data that, uh, school closures are actually not, that their effectiveness in preventing the, the, the spread of the disease is pretty, pretty small. So, and we, one thing is that it's a relatively small effect, but the other really important data point is that increasing the duration of school closure does nothing past eight days. So there's no... That seems counterintuitive. Could you explain why that is? Yeah, I'm not sure I have a good uh, causal story to tell about that. We could spin a... Could you imagine a kind of story that would explain something like that? Complex. Let, let, yeah, Eric, why don't you go ahead? Complex dynamics, are, complex dynamics are always counterintuitive. Yeah, and it's often, sorry, Eric, but households seem to be an important vector. So a, a lot of a lot of spread happens in the home. Mm. Um, so having you're locking everybody in the home more. And that's where the primary yeah. spread is happening. Is that the issue? No, 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 not at all, not at all. So maybe Eric, do you, do you want to talk about 
that uh, evidence? So... I don't have anything to say about the particular explanation. I want to I want to remind people very strenuously that your intuitions about these things are useless. Are, are terrible, yeah. <laughs> even, even experts. So, I mean, I could give you lots of stories of, of scientists I've talked to in climate science or in astrophysics or whatever who run simulations who think, if I tweak this parameter in this direction, it's obviously going to have this causal effect downstream. Yeah. It does just exactly the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Complex systems are not suitable to you reasoning about a priori or consulting your intuitions. About no, but it. it is important. It is important in terms of, because at the end of the day, you do have to persuade the public, right? And so I guess what I'm asking you is, could you tell me a kind of a story that would make my intuition go, oh, okay. You know what I mean? I guess I get that. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I don't know in this case. In this case, I don't know. And, it may, and there may not be one. I don't know. But maybe John could say something. Yeah, more. because it sounds, I mean, on the one hand, you're saying, you know, it may be effective to not have people going into stadiums, right. And, and hanging out and like, but people going into schools, well, that's not effective. You know what I mean? I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, if the, if the principle then isn't, we shouldn't have large gatherings, um, then what is the principle or is there no principle? Is it, is it actually a, a much more dicey particularistic kind of John, do you have any thoughts on yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spin a spin a story about that. I'm not an epidemiologist yeah. and going on what uh what uh what the review of the of the modeling and the evidence tells so us. So it we just what it shows us is that it works up to eight days sort of and then after it doesn't work at all, but we don't know why. Have any effect. Extending no. the school closure beyond eight eight days doesn't seem to have any effect. So, I should say that a number of, when I pointed this out to some people, there is a reply which is well we don't know what school closures do in conjunction with these other measures, because we've never done that. Mm. So. Yeah. There's always going to be a reply like that just because of the number of variables. Um, I mean, the, the, the point of that, the point of raising that particular, um, I don't know, um, fact Mm -hmm. is that, uh, you know, the, the young are bearing a heavy, heavy, heavy cost. Uh, during this and uh, and we yeah. do have some responsibility to 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 recognize how difficult it is for for children and young people um, and we shouldn 't take that lightly right yeah. so yeah. closing the schools i think was a prudent measure at some point during the pandemic. It might not be a prudent measure going forward, yeah. so in the case of our own industry, the universities. Um, the talk of keeping the universities closed, you know, we should, we should weigh that very carefully. I know that in, in China, for example, they're, they're maintaining the closure of uh, universities and colleges because they're worried about transmission geographically, but they're beginning to open the elementary school because there's no fear that people are going from province to province to go to elementary school. So um, there's, there's a, there's a lot of factors there that, as you said, as, you and Eric both said, aren't straightforward cost-benefit analyses. But uh, I think, you know, responsible consideration of the harms that other people are are, are suffering because of this is, is, you know, it's incumbent on us to take that into account, especially if we have evidence that says, well, it's not clear that what we're doing is any good. So if it's, if it's, yeah. 
Yeah, so just just to note one thing, I mean, so Denmark, where I think some of the best science, some of the best random testing, et cetera, so they reopened schools yesterday for uh, kids up to nine years old. Um, I, I think there's probably very little harm to kids over that age being kept out of school. They'll be fine. Uh, that's my a completely uninformed opinion about that. But but yeah, I mean, especially for kids that, you know, then are putting a burden on their parents, not if their parents are healthcare workers or work in other essential services or whatever, uh, having kids under nine have to stay home. Obviously that has high costs. Yeah. 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 I think, I think as the parent of teenagers, I would say that, uh, that, uh, not being able to go to school is, is it actually a real harm. For, well, the cost for... is tremendous. I mean, listen, my daughter is graduating high school now. She's going to have no graduation. She's going to have no prom. I don't know what price you put on exp- once in a lifetime experiences. I don't even know how to measure that. That gets back to that earlier issue about policy and about, you know, the sorts of values that are not informed very much by, by any empirical science. Um, and she is very excited about going, beginning university next fall. She's been accepted and has accepted an offer to go to the university of Indiana um, for vocal performance. It's not clear that that's going to happen. Right. I mean, it's not clear, you know, and so these things do really matter. Um, obviously um, people dying of a pandemic really matters. Um um, and obviously nav- navigating all that purely from a value side is extraordinarily difficult, um, but it's something that we have to do. I mean, and that, and that policymakers have to do. Um, and so let me ask you just to keep this back because we, you know, we didn't want to have primarily a philosophy and values discussion. To the extent to which it seems like you both have concerns about how the modeling is being done and used with respect to the policy making about the virus. Maybe you could articulate what some of those concerns are. Eric, you want to go first since you're yeah, so I, I mean, here's, here's I think here's I think one very broad brush kind of concern that I have. So I spent a minute uh, a while ago explaining the difference between kind of cost benefit analysis and precautionary uh, thinking about you know, policy. And my worry is that with, particularly with a model like the Imperial College model, where there's 700 parameters, many of which are un, 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 unconnected to any real data, modelers have enormous flexibility in, in having the models come out in, in a variety of different ways. And I worry that um, rightly, let me say this, rightly, epidemiologists are going to be cautious here. They're not going to want to say all's clear when it isn't. Okay. That's justified on their part. They should do it. They were right to do it. But I worry that precautionary reasoning is getting paraded as objective modeling so that what's really going on is people are thinking we better be cautious, but rather than coming out and saying that, What they're doing is they're producing scary models that then have the rhetorical power of convincing other people to be cautious. Now, I worry about that even if the precautionary reasoning is justified. I worry about it for two reasons. One is I worry about the effect that's going to have on the credibility of science. If you parade out models Mm. that end up looking really bad. And the other is I worry that there's a difference between 
uh, maybe, it's th- maybe it's three things. It's like the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, there's three things. Uh, um, the second is you are making value judgments for other people and you're hiding them in what looks like something objective. But then I think even worse than that, maybe, when you do that, right, when you parade out these models that say absolutely very little uncertainty, 2.2 million dead in the U.S. if we don't make these measures, I think it, it then becomes very hard to dial that back. So I think if you do that, if you parade out a model that says 2.2 million dead without measures, but then new data start coming in, Right, data like let's say these the 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 pregnant women study in New York, which I think probably tells us that something north of thirty percent of New Yorkers have either are or have been infected. As new data like that comes in, it becomes I think harder for both policymakers and the people who inform them to then say, oh, you know what, that wasn't really a well-informed model because we didn't have really good data. Now the new data are in. And this is, I think, what you see happening in places like Denmark and Germany and Austria uh, is a kind of um, flexibility that we're not seeing here. So, you know, I think some of those Central European countries are behaving in a way that I wish we were behaving more like. And I worry that in part we did, were behaving that way because we tried to, uh, you know, mask precautionary reasoning into cost-benefit reasoning or something like yeah. So, so here's where, here's where I think we would differ slightly. I think the, uh, I certainly wouldn't ascribe, and I don't think Eric means to ascribe, um, the intention. Um, right. No, so, I didn't take it that I didn't, I didn't interpret that right, way. No. Right, 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 right. right. No. I, it's just a natural, I think it's a natural dynamic. I think yeah. it's a natural dynamic. I would say, I would uh, say one, one policy information or whatever. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems with, uh, public discourse around policy in the United States is, you know, the quality of how how people receive their information, the quality of journalism, the sort of excessive kind of entertainment quality of, of American politics that it's kind of sports or entertainment driven or tribal or whatever, that, uh, you know, we're we lock on to, and maybe this is another way of putting your point, we kind of lock on to the, to, to those models, the early models, emotionally or psychologically, and we tribalize them so that if, uh, if, if people are getting on the internet and uh, criticizing the models, then they, they're with the bad guys. They're with the Trump, uh, the Trump crew, right? They're science deniers or whatever. And so I think that kind of, excessive um i mean this is another consequence of the polarization of of american public discourse right so that yeah, not- i had a whole conversation with robert tallis about about his book uh, overdoing democracy about that about this polar polarization right. yeah. so, so the difference is that uh, we're not in a position to sort of wind back and say okay we 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 overshot the mark or we we misinterpreted and then the other the other side of this is that you know this is I guess this is an old old point from from economics that yeah uh, was it maybe I'm, my memory is not serving but I think it was uh, Morgan Stern talked about um, you generate a successful model in economics and you immediately make it false because people act on it 
yeah. right? Yeah. So if you generated these uh, terrifying predictions and then people acted in response to them and thereby falsified the predictions, that wouldn't be a, a vice of the model. That would actually be the model doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Right. right? So those kinds of traps, though, um, well, trap is the wrong word, but we should be in a position to revise our view. And I think what, what Eric's concern is, um, it's, I would say it's not so much that the, that the um, epidemiologists are excessively precautionary. They probably are. Um, but the real, the real uh, pathology is the way that these headlines get used and the way that people latch on to the, to the headlines and then defend themselves by saying, oh, well, I'm listening to the experts. Yeah. And how dare you, philosophers, epistemically trespass on uh, this, on the on the uh, but, on pronouncements of of experts. So, I think that's where we have to be careful. We have to maintain a level of skepticism. I mean, I, look, I think epidemiology is a mature science, but we're in a new situation with respect to the virus. And you know, a lot of these modeling questions are general questions. They're questions in philosophy of science that that people have been talking about for for decades and that are open for, for criticism from, from philosophers of science and other, uh, even, even economics, right, yeah. Has, yeah. has the right to look at these things and be skeptical about, the, uh, about what, the, what, what the models are telling us. That, that doesn't mean that we can live without models, that we can make decisions without them, but it does mean that we don't just immediately um, defer. Yeah. But I really quick want to say no, please, yeah, John. You said that I said that they were overly precautionary. I didn't. I didn't. Oh, he mean, said they're supposed. You said they're supposed to be. I said they they were rightly being precautionary. <laughs> yeah. They were rightly being precautionary. Okay. What I what I was saying was when you have seven hundred parameters to adjust, yeah, and you're in a situation where it behooves you to be precautionary. It's we nobody should be surprised. Nobody should think this is bad on their part. Nobody should be. It's a natural feature of that dynamic that parameters are going to get chosen that that motivate precautionary reasoning on the part of the policymakers. I just think that's that's just what you're going to get when data are poor, parameters are unknown, perturbed ensembles aren't available, all the things that, you know, when you have 30 years like we've had in climate science that you're able to do that you're not able to do in this situation. I think it's just natural that people looking, you know, a virus down in the face that might kill millions of people are going to think, look, it's, it's, this is a moment to be cautious. I think that's entirely justified. I just worry that it gets packaged then in a way that makes it unsuitable to being revised. Sure. Let me just, let me just clarify the point then. I, I think I can, I can agree with a lot of what you're saying, but if we're looking at the difference in reception of, uh, of epidemiology across countries, then that's a, that's a cultural difference. It's a difference in the quality of public discourse. And, uh, and, and so, so even, so presumably the, 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 uh, so yeah, that's all I would say. Yeah. I, I, let me just, because I interpreted our certain way that I think, um, I don't think there's actually any disagreement between you. I mean, I, the way I interpreted Eric was that if, if we are currently witnessing a failure of some kind, it's entirely a failure of political leadership in the following sense. Right. So, so look before, maybe we made 
what seemed like too hard of a distinction between on the one hand, the, the, the empirical science modeling on the one hand, and then the value informed policymaking on the other. But as Eric just rightly pointed out, there is, there are values presupposed within the, in the scientific modeling. Like you said, one thing being the precautionary principle that any responsible epidemiologist um, would, would take on board. And so the, the modeling is going to reflect that, right? That's all how it should be. It strikes me that the problem now becomes when the political leadership simply takes that on board as a straightforward instruction, as opposed to taking it as one point with a presumptive valuation that is um, 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 precautionary, but failing to now consider it in conjunction with other value considerations other than the precautionary. And ultimately, I think, in my view, if you were to ask me, this is the result of, 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 poli- of our political leadership having become unwilling to bear the responsibility of leading, of leading, right? We, 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 we don't hire the epidemiologist to lead. We elect you to lead. The epidemiologist gives you a, a set of information that is itself presupposes a certain value, right? That is, that is a precautionary values, right? You as the leader now have to take that and weigh it against all the other values that need to be considered that the scientist has nothing to do with, right? And then make a policy. And it seems yeah. to me that if there's a failure here, we're going straight from the modeling to the policy without the political, with, and the political leadership part is missing. That's what seems to me to be what comes out of Eric's. Now, I don't know if, if, yeah, if I got that wrong, Eric, but. You know, I think that's right. And I think, look, the situation is not helped when, uh, maybe we're drifting a little bit of field here, but the situation is not helped when we have a president with a probably well-earned reputation for being, um, you know, dismissive of science. And then, um, and then it, it, you know, it immediately scores political points for anybody in a state that's, you know, generally leans away from Trump to say, look at us, you know, we're the, we're, you know, we're just the unabashed, you know, um, agents of good here because uh, this is the Manichaean struggle between uh, one party that hates science and another party that just does exactly what the scientists say we should do or something. Yeah. When, 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 when this is, this is all nonsense, right? I mean, no, there's no such thing as, as politicians, as you, as you've been pointing out a number of times, there's no such thing as politicians doing what the science says. That's right, not right. Right. There's politicians doing what the values say and the science provides information that's relevant to one set of those values, but not all of them. Right. Um, um, John, do you have any, a feel, any feelings about my characterization of Eric and what if there is if there's a failure where, where the failure is and that it's a failure of leadership political um, leadership being willing to lead in a sense well um, I'm not sure I'm not sure I think it's it's um, I don't I mean if you're asking me about the quality of political decision making in the United States I think it varies widely from state to state. Obviously, we've got, uh, you know, we've got um, we've got the Trump administration, which is is uh, is a bit of a disaster. But um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think, for example, in our own state in Kansas or my state, Kansas, we've we've actually got a really excellent political leadership, and uh, I think our 
governor has been very prudent, very careful, um, attentive to the science and, um, you know, maybe what's, what characterizes her dispositionally is that she really doesn't care about getting reelected. Uh, she's a responsible public servant. Um, so then John, what is your concern then? What is your concern? I mean, because Eric pretty clearly voiced what his was yeah. and he had several. What concern then do you have, if you can articulate it? If, is it about the modeling in itself? Is it about the way the modeling is being used by policymakers? What is your main concern? Oh, well, I mean, my, I think my principal role in this discussion is to maybe clarify some of the kind of core points about the role of what models are for, what can they do, how do they get integrated into this uh, public policy decision-making? That's all. I don't have a, I don't have a specific gripe against uh, beyond the sort of the obvious gripes that one would have about these things. I think that there are unexplored options that we can look at. So for example, we talked about the school reopenings we talked about the sort of the basic arithmetic of keeping an eye on the target, the target being, you know, preventing our hospitals from being overwhelmed. If we keep an eye on that target and design policy around that, then there's lots of options. There's lots of ways to reopen that are sensible that can avoid that kind of spread. In terms of the rhetoric and how we present this to the public or how the public understands it, you could say, for example, look, we're all going to get this virus at some point over the next few years. This is, this is a virus. It's like the cold, you know, it's like the flu. We're going to get it. We don't have any um, immunity. It's a novel thing. It's going to course through our population. You're going to get sick at some point. It's just a matter of timing when people get sick and organizing ourselves in a way that, you know, the pace at which people get sick doesn't overwhelm our institutions, our important institutions. That's a kind of recalibration or maybe a reminder of where we started at the beginning of this, uh, of this outbreak, which was with the target of so-called flattening the curve, right? That was all we heard about for the first couple of weeks is flatten the curve, flatten the curve. Um, if we can kind of remind ourselves of that target and then reopen with that in mind, um, that, that might be a helpful, a helpful path forward. Have we done, how have we done that with other communicable illnesses you know how, how have we how have we in handling let's say influenza um prevented systems from getting overwhelmed what have we done now obviously we a, there we, we, have developed, we, we have a vaccine but there are vaccine. years there are years where it's the wrong one right i mean there are years where it, it it's not so particularly effective there's, there's uh, obviously well eric can maybe speak Hold so, so for one thing the flu isn't a novel virus right but it was at one point, right? I mean, um, it never was. <laughs> I mean, there must have been something going on in 1918. I'm not an expert. I don't know. Um, but but look, we have had we have had hospitals get overtaxed because of the flu. Uh, they were massively overtaxed in in Germany in 2017 18. Mm. There are stories you can read if you look in the local presses of Los Angeles and Dallas, also 2017 2018. There were you can see pictures of tent hospitals in Los Angeles because the flu was overtaxing our systems. Now, of course, it was nothing like what we saw in Italy or what we saw in in uh, in, in Wuhan. Right. But um, 
but it, it's happened and it's to, to the best of my knowledge, uh, nothing has happened uh, in the United States that has been uh, an order, you know, a, a genuinely qualitative order larger than what we've seen before in the United States. As in order. terms of periodic overwhelmings of the system right. by, by something that's particularly virulent or, or, or right. um, so there is no way in a sense to prevent being overwhelmed. What happens is you periodically get overwhelmed and then hopefully you, you adjust in your systems and everything so that the next time you get overwhelmed, it's not quite as bad next time. And look, and, and look um, uh, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a sort of libertarian point here that I only sort of half heartedly endorse. Um, and that's that if you look at the data, uh, people are pretty smart. Uh, you know, when they see people dying, they, they don't, you know, they start washing their hands more and wearing masks and not going out as much or whatever. And, and if you kind of look at some of the data around this viral outbreak, you can kind of see that people were already doing some of the things uh, that governments began mandating before the government mandated it. And that, of course, has the advantage that nobody needs to get arrested. Uh, nobody needs to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So right. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a strong view about whether that claim is correct or not. But I do think it's worth um, thinking about uh, yeah. the extent to which people are smart enough to kind of bring about most of the benefits that you're going to get from this without the need for government intervention. I don't know. John, I have a question. You said before, you know, this notion of the sort of the, a smart model informed um, ways of trying to reopen, so to speak, like the elementary school case, you gave an example um, and others. I guess the question I have is John, do we have, but are are we collecting information sufficiently and in the right ways to feed the models such that we can trust the answers that are, that we get out of them, I guess is what I'm asking you, John, since that was your focus was more how we use the models to make the policies. And, and you gave this example of the elementary schools reopening. Um, um, are we feeding the sufficient and the right way information into the models such that, they're going to help us in that regard. Well, look, there's lots of people working on these things and doing a good job trying to do that. Um, I think obviously testing is critically important. So, I mean, everyone's saying testing, testing, testing. I would just agree. I think, and I mean, the other, the other part, I don't want to repeat myself, but sort of consistent, uh, consistent measures, consistent reporting. That's really important. So um, we, you know, if we're flying blind, then uh, we're 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 in trouble. But uh, but we're slowly gathering. We we I think the lesson of this will be to increase surveillance, increase consistency, um, and yeah, I think we'll we'll get there. Seems also like communications is very important in terms of getting all the different parts of the country and all the different localities and everything where there is a reliable and consistent giving of information to let's say the CDC or whatever the central so that we, when we make national forecasts, they're actually based on sort of a, given the wild disparity between places like New York city and Wyoming, let's say um, in terms of population density, et cetera, we really do need information to be coming in consistently from all these different areas 
to get an accurate nat- national picture. Is that not correct? I mean, yeah, but constructing that kind of surveillance mechanism or the, those kinds of institutions is, is, is a relatively cheap uh, way of helping us guide policy going forward. And given the deep costs, the sort of dramatic costs of this, I think we, we, will, we will see the development of those kinds of, uh, of, uh, of institutions and strategies. Imagine, imagine if this thing had played out from the beginning in such a way as you could have all along gone to a web page, which would have told you the rate of infection in every state, would have told you uh, how many ICU beds and ordinary hospital beds were available in every county in the state, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Imagine the quality of judgment that we could have been making about this. So there is no such database with such information is what you're saying. Look, so there's no database about the hospital beds and there just hasn't been anything like systematic testing. The best, the best American information that we have comes from the, in my opinion, I've been looking at a lot of this, the best information that we have about the United States rate of of infection comes from this study of pregnant women in New York City. I mean, that's crazy. Why, why, are, we, why are we shutting down 30% of the economy, putting 30% of people out of work, but we're not just doing some basic random testing of people so that we know what the rate of infection is in every state? Well, that, do, you have a, do you have an answer to that why question? Good or bad answer, but do you have or a guess as to why you think we're not more aggressively pursuing the data accu- accumulation? I don't know. But that I mean, of all the of all the of all the sort of you know poo that I could throw at that, I mean, this is just scandalous. This is just criminally immoral that we don't have this information. I don't know who I don't know who entirely is to blame for it. I don't know whether it's the CDC or Trump or the governors or whatever. I don't know enough about the ins and outs of all of that, but it's just, it's just not, I mean, it's just not acceptable that we're not finding this stuff out, which is not that hard to find. Could out. it just be though, Eric, as a result, as a result of the, just the, the massive decentralization of the entire system. In other words, that we don't really have a system. What we have is a patchwork of locales with their own systems and nobody ever, nobody ever really sort of put it all together and tried to create a national database. That's for the hospital bed stuff. I think that's probably right in that case. But, but why? But why is Governor Cuomo not doing this? Why is Governor Newsom not doing this? You mean the testing? The testing, getting just telling us what the underlying rate of infection is. It's not okay that we don't know that. When John, we could... John, do you have any insight as to why that's not being done, or? I have no insight as to why it's not being done. I mean, I again, I'm, I don't want to repeat myself, yeah, yeah. but I, I gave a kind of similar defense of the the importance of figuring out the the uh, the rate of inf- the current rate of infection. Even if it's just a snapshot, it would be helpful, as Eric is saying. Yeah. And it actually wouldn't be that expensive. It wouldn't be. Now, maybe maybe we're wrong somehow about the epidemiology or the the, the value of of that kind of. Uh, that kind of community probe, yeah. uh, but uh, but it, it it certainly needs needs serious consideration, yeah. as Eric is saying. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, we should be doing it. We're doing it, and they 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 are doing it in different different countries. So, uh, I guess 
Korea had something like this. The Germans are doing something like this. Iceland on the 14th of March or 15th of March had something like this. Denmark. Um, Denmark. Denmark. Yeah. 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 I mean, it it wouldn't be that expensive and, uh, you know, it wouldn't be, I mean, it would at least give us a snapshot of where we are. And, um, and so those are, those are, I agree with Eric. Those are the kinds of, of data that we, we, we really should be getting. And, uh, and there actually are, I think some studies that have been started along those lines, but, um, I, I don't know what the progress is at the moment. Um, okay. I mean, is there anything that either of you t- gentlemen want to add um, um, to the discussion on this? Not that we, that this pre- doesn't preclude us from having future discussions, but is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to discuss? I think I've gotten most of the things that I wanted to say. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, the it's certainly the case that the disease has exposed all kinds of um weaknesses in our in our social system and our political system um it's also exposed a kind of weakness in our capacity to deliberate about these problems publicly um so there's 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 lots to be learned i think um we also need to be you know obviously should go without saying we need to be sensitive to to you know the the harms that um that result from any decision we take for vulnerable people. So I think the sort of the effects on the young, the effects on marginal populations in the United States are are, uh, things we should take into account when we make these kinds of sweeping um, decisions around uh, closing the economy down, et cetera. And uh, I think that that's been mentioned but that also the effects on victims of domestic violence i think here could be that's being reported on in the uk i've noticed i've noticed there's been quite a bit of reporting on the uh an apparent increase in domestic violence in the uk simply because these i don't know if we're doing i haven't seen really quite as much reporting on that in the u.s but in the uk there's certainly been some in the u.s i think yeah Um, yeah look i mean come on you bottle people up in in their homes for weeks on end Uh, yeah People who are—I'm not saying it's going to cause ordinary people who wouldn't normally commit domestic violence to do it, but yeah, uh, yeah. You know, we already have a fairly large problem with that, and it's just clear. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's funny that that's why I was sort of stressing. You know, as you rightfully said, it is the rightful aim of epidemiologists to. To, to operate on the precautionary principle of of preventing as many people as possible from getting the disease. Um, but and overburdening systems, but it's got to be the it's got to be the aim of policymakers. The aim of policymakers has to be broader and more general. It has to be the overall not harming of the public, um, of which this is one one variable, but of which all the remedies implications may also themselves be variables. Um, and I think that everybody kind of knows that. And this maybe gets back to what John was saying. And that part of the real problem here is that we have a real problem in public discourse and communications is that you cannot even have these conversations at a certain point because people employ them in all sorts of partisan and tribal and other stupid sort of um, 
uh, 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 battles that, um, that, that, that make that sort of conversation impossible. But it's, look, it's a conversation you simply have to have. I mean, I've been saying all over social media that, look, you know, there's simply no way the public will tolerate 18 months of a lockdown. If you try to impose it, there will be mass civil unrest and riots, right? Um, and so you're going to have this conversation at some point. It's just a matter of when, and it's just a matter of how painful or pleasant the conversation is going to be, but you will have this conversation. And, and very little of the discourse, I'm, I would note, very little of the discourse is reminding people, as it needs to do, that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. Right? Yeah. We are not, not going to deal with this uh, you know, by the end of April or by the end of May or by the end of June or by the end of 2020 or even by the end of 2021, most likely. Right? So... This is, you know, as John, I think, has emphasized a number of times, this is a virus that is going to work its way through the American public one way or another yeah. Until, yeah. We have, yeah. until we have a vaccine. Right. And let's not be overly optimistic about what a vaccine like that is going to be like. It's going to be, I would guess, at best as good as the flu vaccine we have now, at best, given that we've had, you know, decades to, to refine that vaccine. So... This is definitely a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, I don't think a lot of the public discourse about what kinds of measures are warranted is taking adequate cognizance of that fact. Well, and one variable that's not been mentioned at all and that obviously affects the whole calculus, which we just don't know, is aside from a vaccine, will we be able to develop treatments that will meet? Because right now, if you get it bad, you're really fucked right i mean it's sort of this weird schism between either you get it and it's not bad at all you get it and you're totally fucked i'm assuming that treatments will start to develop in which the people who get it won't be as completely fucked so to speak um and we just don't know that right we just have no idea what or when treatments that will mitigate the effects of those who have it and maybe thereby make having it bad more survivable we just don't know any of that right um um I, yeah, I, I wouldn't hazard even a guess. As to yeah, and that's that. another variable, right? I mean, that's going to be a huge, have a huge impact on policymakers. Because look, you know, even though this may take years and we may never get a vaccine, if we have effective treatments, that getting it is not like going to kill you immediately. If you get it bad, we might decide to reopen up sooner rather than later, right? And so we just don't know. So anyway. Um, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the, the conversation. Um, and I think it's an important one to have. And like I said, we will be having it, whether we want to or not, uh, as this goes longer and longer. Um, and so I want to thank both of you very much. Thank you very much for having me and us on. Yeah, it's been great. And uh, maybe maybe uh, as you think, are you guys working on John, you mentioned something about that you guys are going to do something together on this, like an academic something on this paper? Um, well, hopefully. hopefully. <laughs> oh, was that, had you not broached that with Eric yet? We talked about it briefly, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, there's just so much going on and, uh, and I think things are moving quickly. And, yeah. uh, so we, well, if you guys do get together or do have some, you know, work that you want to do together, I'd love to, I'd love to have you on again to talk about it. So, um, um, thank you so much. Thanks. And all right. Thank take, you. Take care. All right. right. Everybody stay safe. Everybody stay safe and healthy. That goes without saying. Yeah. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.